Hello, and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where three editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by senior editor Tess Thackera. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Tess. And staff writer Alexa Gotthardt. Hi, Isaac. Hey, Alexa. So this week, we're going to be discussing Tess's article, uh, We Need a New Kind of Feminist Art. It was published in December, but the issues um, brought up remain important and very present. So I think the easiest place to begin is just to get a quick summary. Um, Tess, what what do you kind of talk about here? So the point I'm really trying to stress in the piece is that feminism needs to reach across other demographic lines. So what do you mean when you say different demographics? What's the starting point? So there is still a tendency for feminism to be dominated by privileged, gender normative white women. Um, even though there's been pushback against that for many decades at this point, there's still that proclivity for feminism to be too limited in its scope um, and to not accommodate the experience of, for instance, black women who are twice oppressed. They are oppressed as black individuals and as women. And and I think that uh, kind of bringing this to the art world, you know, there's recently in 2016 an emphasis on on highlighting women artists, but I think there are group shows that are still entirely white. Yeah, we saw that in one example this year at the Denver Art Museum. They hosted a really exciting, important show um, around the mostly forgotten women of the abstract expressionist movement. All of the women um, in that show are white, but there are definitely some female artists who were considered part of the abstract expressionist movement. Women artists of color, like Alma Thomas, who weren't included in the show. They did, however, include her in the catalog, um, as they did many other artists who they weren't able to include in the show. But um, it definitely kind of garnered a little bit of criticism. There were a lot of other all-female shows this year um, that Tess pointed out in her article that again um, were important shows that gave voices to a lot of artists who hadn't necessarily been given the time of day before. But minority artists were in large part left left out of a lot of those shows. And Tess, what I think is great about or, or important about this argument that you're making and a lot of other uh, authors and, and writers have, have sort of hit on, which is this word intersectionality, which mm-hmm. is that this idea that it is fundamentally incomplete and wrong and reifying a lot of the issues that cause discrimination to begin with to ignore minority artists when you tell the story of of those who are most marginalized from the canon? Yes. Um, I think that feminism at its core is about raising consciousness about the experience of oppression due to certain conditions in your life, whether that's related to your gender, um, sexual orientation, a whole... Um, you know, sort of cocktail of different conditioning factors that might make you who you are in the world. And so I think feminism can be a lot stronger uh, if we can sort of reach across the aisle um, and include, make it as inclusive as as possible. So before we get too much deeper here, um, Alexa, you mentioned that, you know, 2016 was a year of uh, a lot of all women shows, tests. I remember you were planning to write around that with a more sort of positive (laughs) angle, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. So this article was initially going to be sort of a recap um, and analysis of the year in women's art. 
Um, I think we saw a almost feverish level of attention to, to women's art over the past year, um, or in 2016. A lot of all women's group shows, a lot of female so solo shows, um, high profile solo shows, which should be a given across any art world year, but actually, you know, these things still don't come naturally. And so curators call attention to the way they're giving, um, the way they're spotlighting female artists. We had Frances Morris take over the Tate. Um, the Brooklyn Museum launched their 10 year anniversary of the Sackler Center for Feminist Art with this series of shows, A Year of Yes. Um, you know, we also had our first legitimate female presidential candidate beyond the art world. We had Obama um, penning a feminist essay in Glamour magazine. So it just felt to me like this was a sort of a very frenzied year of attention to women's issues that felt like it was going to crescendo into Hillary breaking the glass ceiling and then it would be a sort of triumphant look back at the achievements um, of 2016. And of course, what, was ha what happened was was very different. And I think what surprised a lot of people uh, also in Hillary's loss was the fact that uh, white women predominantly voted right. against her. And I think that that is uh, emblematic or indicative or a manifestation of white feminism yes, in a lot of ways. Exactly. And that felt like a failure. And I think now in the current political and social climate, the fallout from the election to me, feminism feels particularly urgent, and this is a, this came up in a discussion I had with the the feminist curator at the Brooklyn Museum, Catherine Morris, who said, you know, that she pre-election felt that there could be a discussion around whether or not the Brooklyn Museum needed a feminist center, well, and now that question is completely off the table. I mean, can I push back a little though, because I think it's interesting that all of these problems of predominantly white. Uh, women exhibitions occurring in the art world existed completely independently of Hillary Clinton's uh, victory or loss. So why um, does her loss make this something uh, that needs to be written? Does Isn't it yeah. need to occur outside of that as well? Yeah, I think that the problem would have existed, as you say, regardless of whether Hillary won, but Hillary's loss sort of adds a lot more weight and urgency um, to this issue as we find ourselves now in a situation where we have an incoming president who I would argue is existentially hostile to the freedoms of women and, and all other sorts of oppressed groups in America. Um, so finding unity across those demographic lines feels particularly urgent now. Yeah, and, and you know, what are some examples? Uh, obviously, there, this is occurring in, you know, political activism, but within the art world, where are some mm. examples of this kind of intersectionality, this sort of solidarity between different classes and groups occurring? Well, historically, I mean, Faith Ringgold is one example that I talk about in the article. Um, she's someone that Catherine Morris flagged. She will be in the show, the upcoming Brooklyn Museum show about black radical women, um, the, the way that women participated in the feminist movement. Faith Ringgold participated in both the civil rights and feminist movements, and Catherine Morris said she really needed both of those movements, both of those methodologies um, that in order to um, sort of further her concerns or her, you know, further her goals. Um, and yeah, just also thinking about how, you know, critiques of white feminism, even if that 
lexicon is maybe more contemporary, have existed for a long time. Faith Ringel's daughter, Michelle Wallace, is a, was an early uh, critic of, of um, both the position of, of black men to black women and white women mm-hmm. uh, to black women and sort of teasing out those power dynamics um, a long, long time ago. Yeah, Isaac, it's interesting that you bring up Michelle Wallace. Um, I think Tess and I have even talked about this before, like these conversations and issues around intersectionality and and feminism um, are ongoing, and there have been advocates for intersectionality and feminism and feminist art like Michelle Wallace since the 80s and before. So I don't know, I guess I'm just wondering, Tess, why do you feel like now is the time to bring up these these topics again, why in the title of your piece um, did you say we need a new kind of feminism? Yeah, so I mean, when I began writing the piece, it wasn't really intended to be prescriptive about what feminist art should look like. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this is feminism, this isn't feminism. I was more thinking of trying to coherently distill all of the discourse that's taken place around feminism, the events that have taken place that relate to this across 2016 and sort of marshal them um, into some momentum or direction and also issue a bit of a rallying cry to artists to um, kind of take ownership of feminism and reimagine it because feminism has morphed continuously for decades. It's never stayed the same thing. It means something different to everyone else. Um, And I think that feminism could be really powerful and important over the next few years. And um, it would be great if artists really kind of took hold of it and reimagined it in some way. Yeah, it's it's exciting. I think we're already kind of seeing some artists who think about feminism in their work and broach feminism in their work mobilize around the um, women's march that's coming up and artists like Marilyn Minter and Rachel Liebeskind um, who've joined forces to create these kind of feminist art activist groups like Dear Ivanka for for instance so it's it was really exciting to read your article and then kind of see these women artists mobilizing, beginning to mobilize at the same time, but we obviously still have a long way to go. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that reimagining feminism is not not only about creating new work um, that touches on these issues across racial, gender, Mm -hmm. class, sexual orientation lines, but also continuing to revise the past Mm -hmm. um, and to surface histories that go untold because they're related to women mm-hmm. right and i think um i mean i assume that when you use the word reimagining there's a certain emphasis on the idea that a lot of this intellectual work has been done by the people who have always understood that white feminism is inadequate and those are the people who are not included um in it and um broader than that you know looking back at at sort of zooming this this point out even further and asking you know where does this kind of flawed analysis of art history come from and where does this um, exclusion of certain marginalized groups come from? And it's not because, you know, the artists are bad. Um, It's not because the thinkers aren't there criticizing white feminism. It's because the systems that amplify and distribute art and ideas are controlled by certain people and certain groups. 
um, mm-hmm. white people, predominantly men. Um, mm-hmm. So so that's that's kind of an important point when we're sort of thinking about resurfacing history, as you mentioned, Tess, and I feel like that's one we, we hit on a lot towards the end of 2016, which is sort of the yeah. how much systematic change mm-hmm. has really occurred in, in the art world, but also in, in the world at large. Yeah, I know Tess and I both um, had a interesting moment of I don't know if it was really realization but um we were both at a at a talk earlier this year where a bunch of women leaders in the museum world were gathered and um during the question and answer section an artist named Andrea Geyer got up and she essentially said you know I'm so excited by what you all are doing you're leading the charge in leadership and the arts and arts but like there's a huge blind spot in the history of women's leadership in the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, and and she's assen- she essentially um, has devoted her work for the past few years to this question of like cultural amnesia when it comes to women's achievements in the arts. It's been happening for years, for decades, for centuries. Um, yeah, and I think there's definitely sort of an ongoing question maybe never directly articulated about in which order do you do things like do you go back and untangle the past like you know the studio museum with its circa 1970 exhibition that's up right now that goes back and looks at a lot of uh, black artists who were working during a time where black artists were excluded um, from from quote-unquote mainstream art institutions so do you go back and do that that work in the past first or do you um try to level the contemporary and focus on on this moment in time and make a diverse um, cross-section and and represent a diverse sort of swath of society and obviously I think the answer is you know both Both. (laughs) (laughs) but but not but but vaulting one above the other would be a mistake I think yeah I think both aspects are really important I think um, contemporary artists can really take hold of the past and own it and seize it and sort of carry it forward in new and interesting ways um i also think that we're seeing women correct the mistakes of the past already in 2017 with the women's march on dc um january 21st the day after trump's inauguration the discourse around the march initially was very contentious it actually still continues to be very contentious but um the the what i think it was begun by two white women or at least there was one white woman that was very central um, to the initial planning who very quickly pivoted and found leaders of color to step up and sort of um, be the, the main leaders of the march. So I think we're already seeing in 2017 a lot of energy um, around these issues. I know most of my female friends are going on the march and feeling like people are sort of women are more energized than ever before that I've seen in my lifetime. And that's really exciting. I think that's a great uh, hopeful point to leave it. So for the first time in 2017, we're returning to our regular segment uh, where we'll be drinking white wine in the art world this week. But for this year, we're trying something new. We're not just looking forward at things we're going to be attending. We're also looking back at some of the things we have attended. So it can be the future or the past, kind of straddling that binary that Alexa and I were talking about during the podcast. <laughs> um, so Tess, do you wanna do you wanna kick off uh, for us? Yeah, so I saw a really great show when I was in London over the holidays by Paul Nash, who was a British surrealist painter who I knew very little about before I went. 
um, and I was kind of just blown away. His his painting um, is often dealing with the wars, both world wars. Um, he was the official painter, I think, for the First World War, uh, and he created these gorgeous, surrealist, um, very dramatic uh, landscapes of of the war that are disturbing but really powerful um, and also some great landscapes of the British countryside and the, and the sea and That's it just great. yeah it was it was good Alexa so I have two looking back I saw the dreamlands exhibition at Whitney experimental immersive cinema and art from 1905 to 2016 and I was really excited to see a huge Stan Vanderbeek installation it's a really important experimental filmmaker um, kind of narrow hallway opens up into this massive installation and it's really um, kind of mind melting mind boggling as, as all of his work is um, so I was excited to see that because he's a personal hero of mine and um and then just today, I went uptown to Francis Nauman Fine Art. He's a Dada scholar and knows a lot about 1980s New York art. And he's opening a show in his um, 56th Street space on Friday of Carlo Maria Mariani's work, who's an Italian artist who um, lived in New York in the 80s and was good friends with like Francesco Clemente, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And he's um, making some really... Like, here he's presenting some really interesting satirical works by him cool yeah. and uh i mentioned this show in the podcast but i went to see circa 1970 at the studio uh, museum last week um during my final few days of uh vacation and it was, what was really interesting about that show was it kind of tied in both to a conversation i had with uh Susan Kahn uh, about diversifying museums in the 1970s because the exhibition focuses on on African-American artists uh, who were working circa 1970. But it also interestingly tied in with this book that I was that I'm reading or just finished about uh, the rise of Ronald Reagan, which takes place during the 1970s. And it was interesting to sort of think about a lot of these artists, you know, none of this is in the wall text, you know, working um, while Watergate was happening, um, while Ronald Reagan was rising while modern conservatism was was taking hold um and just to kind of collapse those two things uh very viscerally in a way that you know the wall text didn't necessarily do was was a fun experience um so i highly recommend you know picking up a history book even if you're interested in art history anyway enough rambling from me uh thanks so much for listening thanks to our guests uh, Tess and Alexa. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. See you next time. Our producer this week was editorial associate Abigail Kane, and the theme music is by Broke for Free.